Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. And we are your hosts for the evening. So before we get into anything, we're going to go ahead and do a couple of shout outs. We got a couple more reviews. I believe four of them are from the US and then we have one from the UK. So this is just a general blanket. Thank you very much. But we're going to specifically shout out a couple of names here. Okay, Kelly Gaw, Kelly Gaw, thank you so much. Appreciate your review. 127MDW, thank you very much. Suba475, thank you very much. Moo21, <laughs> thank you very much. And our one UK lead, Back Leads, thank you very much. Yes, thank you guys so much for leaving reviews. I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. You may notice in these next couple episodes that the audio might change slightly, but that's because we're testing out new podcasting software. I figured I should let you guys know we're testing things out. So if you like something you hear, let us know so that we know what to invest our money in. Hey, thanks. We have a special guest for this episode. Yes, special guest. So obviously, if you couldn't see from the title, we're doing the Superbike Murders, which is going to be part one into our Todd Colehep series which we'll talk a little bit more we'll we'll talk a lot of more about him <laughs> on part two but the superbike murder incident is like a really big incident that i feel like needed its own case yeah. and also for those who don't know scott ponder was the owner of superbikes and his wife or it was his wife melissa ponder has came on to talk with us today she's not actually here it's like previously recorded because that's how we could fit it into our schedules because that was the only time we could meet so we'll like throughout we'll sprinkle her interview in but she was so nice and she has a book coming out yeah she was very nice we ended up going over our time limit and thankfully zoom was like hey we're gonna gift you with <laughs> an unlimited extended, yeah unlimited recording i was like thanks oh and we... we also got to talk to his son scotty yes yes so he came in there at the end and he was very sweet had luscious hair i was very jealous very very <laughs> luscious hair so he was we'll... like a super cute he was super cute he was very sweet they both were so i was very excited that we were able to get that interview with them shout out to brit for <laughs> her reaching out thanks i messaged her she has a personal facebook and like a blog dedicated to i guess like growing yeah. and i messaged her twice and i was like hey please and she was like of course i love podcasts and i was like okay cool thanks yeah, because I guess the worst thing that could happen, either you ask and somebody says no, or you don't ask and you never know the answer. So might as well ask, you know? So I also had reached out to Kayla Brown, who is also yes. one of his victims, but I think she has on her um, social media, like where she can't receive messages. From strangers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that Which makes sense. Fine. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Brit is going to be leading this case. I know a tiny bit about the superbike stuff, so I might chime in here and there, but Brit, take it away. All right. So there's a small town in South Carolina. It's in the upstate. It's called Chesney. Mm -hmm. Chesney. And it literally has a population of like less than 900 people. It's so tiny. like the definition of a small town. <laughs> this is literally a yeah. small town. So 30-year-old Scott Ponder, a man who loved motorcycles and power sports, would go on to open a motorcycle and power sports shop dealership called Superbike Motorsports. This was open in January of 2001. 
back in the prehistoric <laughs> ages. Stop, you're making me feel old. Oh yeah, you're turning mm-hmm. third. Yeah, uh, well that and then it was when I was editing the Abraham, David, and Heidi episode, you mentioned that you were only seven years old at the time that one of the cases happened. And I was like, oh God, because <laughs> I was in high school. I was like, ah. Okay, anyways. <laughs> Okay, so this is kind of cool, actually. Scott would use the internet to sell motorcycles. So he was ahead of his time. I was about to say, which was like a pretty cool and unique way to sell motorcycles in the early 2000s. But this was really like the first motorcycle shop to like ever use the internet. But in his first year, the dealership did over a million dollars in sales. Wow. I wonder what it's like to be rich. (laughs) Yeah, um, that would be a nice thing to figure out someday okay in life scott ponder was surrounded by loving friends and family so one of these people were his best friend brian lucas who was 29 years old at the time of the incident he would go on to eventually become like the service manager at the dealership Mm -hmm. brian also liked motorcycles just like scott and so it only made sense for him to work full-time at superbike motorsports this is kind of funny but he quit his current job to go work with scott but he kept it a secret from his wife and family until it's like official (laughs) so i that's brazy yeah because it's like i mean obviously he's gonna get the job but what if the store wasn't successful you know and then you quit your already established job to go off and do whatever but i guess that's why he didn't tell his wife i mean yeah but i guess if you don't try you never know so melissa ponder had married Scott on April 2nd, 2000. I swear to God, I'm not a stalker, but like I literally had to look at her Facebook page to find this date. And I was like going back through posts and I was like, what Wild. day did you get married? Wild. It's okay. I feel like in this instance, it was okay to Facebook stalk. She did add us as friends or we added her as friends and she accepted. And she accepted. So, so let's if it's, if it's on her page. So. Okay. So they married one year before the shop opened and we're gonna go ahead and let melissa explain how the two of them met because it's a really cute story so how did you and scott meet we i worked in the motorcycle industry in arizona i worked for Harley-Davidson at the time and i was told i was going to it was like a dealer show for motorcycles in indianapolis i didn't want to go i knew it was going to be full of men and that i would stand out and just you know a testosterone filled weekend and i just didn't didn't feel up to it and <laughs> they actually insisted that i was going and so i went i met a supervisor of mine out of new york and just the city was so busy that weekend because they add like seventy thousand people to the you know it's it's huge like huge huge yeah three different convention centers full of just nothing but motorcycle stuff. And um, I remember going into a restaurant and want to say like an Outback or something. There's no place to sit. So we sat up at the bar to order food. And um, Scott was actually sitting right next to me at the bar. And we just ended up bumping elbows and, you know, laughing about it. And then I couldn't understand anything he was saying because I'm very Arizona and he was very Southern. <laughs> And so um, I, I felt bad. I kept saying, I'm sorry, I, I can't understand you. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually kind of our first conversation is him laughing at me Aww. because I'm laughing at him because I couldn't understand him. But, you know, it, it just um, started as a really good friendship um, at the time. And it really didn't develop into anything like really, really for like a year, probably. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, 
I love that. That's so cute. Um, so you were, do you eventually found out you were pregnant? So when did you find out you were pregnant and, um, what was, what was his reaction? Like, what was your reaction? Like, well, it was a goal of ours. We had been married for a couple of years and, um, I was 30, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, ancient, but, um, he's 29. He was younger than me. And, um, we both had said, yes, we want kids. And so when we finally made that decision, we, um, had a hard time getting pregnant actually. And so we had to go to the doctor and um, mm-hmm. have all the tests run. And um, I was diagnosed with endometriosis and he was actually told he had a low sperm count. And so we had a lot of stuff stacked against us from the get-go. And so um, through the doctor, you know, thank you fertility. Um, yeah. How we got pregnant. And I oh. was, we, um, we were in Arizona at the time, actually, the doctor had told me you can start taking pregnancy tests, you know, this particular week. And so while we were in Arizona, I took a pregnancy test and it was the first positive test I had ever seen and screaming and jumping and happy and excited. And that was in October of 2003. And so we called his mom, um, who was so excited. She couldn't believe she's going to be a grandma. Uh, my family was super excited too. And, you know, and that's kind of when my, my sickness started. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I found out what was going on, then my body's like, oh yeah, you're pregnant. So now you're sick. <laughs> so, now, now you're going to feel, yeah, feel pregnancy. Right. right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Okay. Beverly Guy, she was 52 at the time. She was Scott's mom and she really wanted to do anything to help Scott out with the dealership. She would usually take deposits to the bank or really anything that he needed her to do. And then the last employee was Chris Sherbert. He was the youngest and the newest. So he was 26, but he was hired on to be the mechanic. So I guess like it was like a new car dealership where they have the sales and then in the back was like the, the service, service department. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So November 6, 2003, it started out like any other day. Just a couple of days before, Melissa told us she had actually had, well, it's really sad, but we'll let her tell it herself. How far along were you in your pregnancy when um, he died? Seven weeks. Oh, you were only seven yeah, weeks? Yeah, I was only seven You had weeks. just found out. We had just found out. We went to our first OB appointment on Tuesday. He died on Thursday. That's so sad. Yeah. It was. It was hard. When she told us that during our interview, like, I just, I felt my heart sink in my chest. I was like, oh, God. They barely had time to be happy about it, you know? So Brian, the shop manager, was supposed to be off that day. Because I think what I read, they were actually going on vacation either that night or the next day. So he was supposed to be off. But he got called in to, like, deal with, like, an angry customer. But he got called in, like, right before it all happened. Oh, no. Kelly Sisk. So he was a customer that was in the shop. He had just gotten back. I think he was in the National Guard. And he had just gotten back from, like, boot camp or doing, like, something in North Carolina with them. Yeah. But him and his four-year-old were at Superbike Motorsports. They were there to make a payment on a go-kart that he was going to buy for the family. Yeah. And they were there for a little bit. Like, they were, I don't know if they were friends with Scott, but I think they. At knew least knew him. him. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in there talking to Scott, and then they were in there looking at the motorcycles because, you know, it's a dealership. So it's going to have a lot of like new, whatever's new in t- to buy. 
but they were there for a little bit looking at the bikes in the showroom. But right as he was leaving, he saw Scott was talking with a customer about a bike and overheard Scott tell the man, oh, this is a pretty good beginner bike. Sisk uh, was like, it's, it's kind of a big bike for a beginner, but I'm going to assume, you know, Scott knows his bike, so I don't think he would lie. Yeah. So the man was wearing a jacket, which was a little odd because this happened in November, but if you know anything about the South, it was very warm that day, and usually all winter long, it snows maybe like two days, and then it's not <laughs> At most. <anymore>. Yeah. <laughs> At usually most. Usually we don't see snow. Yeah. His hair was feathered, and he had like small eyes and kind of skinny lips, and his jaw was narrow. So he was white. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Some white people have big eyes, like yeah. no eyes. Yeah, that's true. But the skinny lips, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Could be Asian. I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> we do have skinny lips. Okay. <laughs> Botox, Juvederm wasn't a thing then. Beverly had just gone to the shop, which is his mom, if you don't remember. Wow, um, so Beverly she, and Brian basically just got there before all this was Yeah, going. and I didn't know this till like, recently, but across the street, I it says her grandmother, but I think it meant it was, like, her mom, but mm-hmm. she lived across the street from the Superbike shop, but okay. Beverly had just got back from taking the grandma to her chemo treatment, and mm-hmm. she was getting her settled, and she had to run the deposit to the bank, so she came in to grab the deposit. <sighs> So, Noel Lee, he had just called the shop as Beverly came in. So, she picked up the phone because it was ringing because that's yeah. what happens when you call somebody. And Noel had asked Beverly if he could come down, that he could be there in like seven minutes because that's how long it, it took from his house to get to the shop. Yeah. Because Chesney is a very small town. Everybody lives beside each other. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, yeah, sure, come on down. I think him and Scott and Brian were also like all three friends so yeah anyways she told him to come on down and then you know they got off the phone after about seven minutes noel arrived at the superbike store and he saw scott and brian laying in the parking lot he thought the two of them were playing a prank on him he yelled at them to get up as he walked closer he like nudged them with his foot and then he realized that they were dead because, I mean, like, I guess, like, I was looking at pictures. You can't really tell until you, like, get close to them that yeah. there's, like, a pool of blood. Because it's kind of, like, blending in with the pavement. Yeah. Because it's not, like, cement. It's, like, dark. Asphalt. Asphalt. It's dark asphalt. <laughs> so, he realized they were dead. Starts freaking out. Yeah. I would, too. <laughs> so, Brian's body was laying the closest to the sidewalk and near the entrance to the dealership doors. And Scott was found closer to the parked cars in the parking lot. So, Noel, like, goes inside the Superbike store to call the police. And that's when he realized there was, like, other people. There was, like, other bodies in the shop. Mm -hmm. So, he found Beverly's body. And she was found, like, in the back of the store. And it looked like she had been ambushed as she was coming out of the bathroom. Oh, jeez. And then when you go out to the back of the shop, they found Chris, which is the Chris Sherbert, the mechanic. He was at the back of the shop and like his body was bent over on a bike as if he had been working on the bike when he was shot. Okay, what's the problem? Apparently everybody's been shot up here. Everybody's laying down in a pool of blood. His mama's been shot, the mechanic's been shot, and the owner. 
So, okay, so they all four were shot execution style. And then whoever shot them went back after everyone was dead and then shot everyone again in the head and chest point blank as if, like, they were making sure that they weren't getting back up, which is kind of, like... That's overkill. Overkill. Because if you kill someone execution style, you already shot them in the head. Yeah, I think execution style is, like, at the front of the head, right? It's either that or like in the like directly on the back. I don't I don't know 100%, but I know it's like you're shooting them in the head. So I don't see what the point of going back and shooting them again in the head and the chest was. But So within minutes of Noel making the call to 911, police were on scene because this was a pretty big deal. This is like the first quadruple homicide in Chesney ever to happen at that point. Yeah. So it's just like. Oh my god, and it happened midday. It happened at like 2.45 p.m. Yeah. Which is like, are you serious? So we asked Melissa what this was like for her on that day. So she's going to tell us from her perspective what happened, what she was feeling, how she found out. This next segment is completely unedited. It's a little bit long, but I felt like it was necessary for you to hear every little detail so that you could understand what was going through her mind on that day when the incident actually happened do you remember how you first found out i was at work i worked for the spartanburg area chamber of commerce at the time Mm -hmm. and um i had i was sick like like really um experiencing pretty bad morning sickness at the time and so i um i had a lot of flexibility with my job and i um that day i was not feeling well at all in fact that morning um he beat me up, beat me up. That sounded bad. He beat me waking up, which yeah. is never, never the case. Um, he loved his sleep and his, his dealership wasn't open until 10 o'clock on purpose because he really liked mm-hmm. to sleep in the morning. So um, he actually woke up before me and got ready. And, um, you know, and I thought I'll go to work for half a day. And so we had talked, um, a couple of times that day because he was going to sponsor the Wofford football game that weekend. Mm-hmm. And so um, we were kind of discussing what they were going to be saying over the microphone at the football game. And, um, and that was the last time I talked to him was like two 30, two 15, two 30, something like that. And mm-hmm. um, then I got a phone call saying I needed to take some like membership materials to somebody. And so I, got in my car, started driving to that business. And then I got a phone call from his credit card vendor who happened to be a a chamber of commerce member as well. And and she called me and she said, I'm actually trying to get out to see Scott, just check on his machines and make sure everything's okay. And she's like, but there's a, a roadblock here and nobody's being allowed through. And I've been told, you know, there may have been a shooting up there. And that's how I found out. I, um, so immediately, obviously, I turn my car around and start heading that way and start, um, I started calling uh, his, his cell phone and then the business phone and then his cell, I just was going back and forth, leaving messages on both and they were going straight to voicemail, which was bizarre. He always answered my calls. And so um, I then called my mom in Arizona and said, I don't know what's going on, but you know, this is what I was told. So just say some prayers. And that was literally the last time I talked to her that day. Um, then I look in my rear view mirror and, and I'm, I'm speeding down Paris bridge road. 
it's like a 20 minute drive, you know, from like Boiling Boiling Springs. Um, And there's like a news van pushing me up the road. I'm going like 75 and this news van is right on me. And I just thought, what in the heck? So I kept calling his phone. It's like, please pick up. I'm frantic. I need to know you're okay. Just pick up, pick up and nothing. And so when I did drive up, I drove up to an intersection. I think it's Martin Camp and Paris Bridge Road. It's kind of a Y and um, everybody was stopped there. There was cops everywhere. There was a helicopter up above. Um, I got out of my car and literally ran right past everybody. Just said, I have to get down there. That's my my husband's business. And then I had a, a, an officer run after me and stop me and said, no, you, you can't go down there. Um, I didn't really know anything at the time. I mean, again, all I knew is what I had heard on on that phone call and I had no details and, and nothing. That's kind of where my day was at that point. It was probably like 3.30, 3.45, maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just, I can't even yeah. imagine. When did you find out, like, when was it confirmed to you? Was it that same day Yes, that it was confirmed? So um, um, I was actually put in a, um, a sheriff, a sheriff's department car. I think uh, Taylor, it was Officer Taylor. Some I can't remember his name, but he, you know, was kind of a gentle person, and he put me in the car. And he had called somebody, and they said to take me home. Well, um, if anybody, you know, knows where the dealership is and knew where our home was, literally like two hundred yards down the road from the dealership, and I couldn't. They didn't drive me past the dealership on purpose, and you know, hindsight, I know why. But yeah, they took me on this like 10 minute, 15 minute, you know, around the countryside to not pass there, which I thought was interesting. And, you know, the whole time I kept telling myself that somebody probably tried to rob the place. So Scott probably, you know, fired at them. And um, then we were going to have to deal with all this legal stuff. And he might have killed somebody that was trying to rob him. And so I had this whole scenario in my head of what probably happened because nobody was telling me anything. And so um, this officer made small talk with me on the way. And he, um, I mean, he was really nice, he, but he didn't go into any, you know, obviously any details. He just said, so, you know, how long have you been married? And I said a couple of years. And then I said, we just found out we were, we we're pregnant. And like, we just went to our first appointment two days ago. And he like, I could tell he kind of froze when I told him that. I mean, I, I picked up on the little cues, you know, I still didn't know anything, but so we got um, to the house and he said, I want you to do me a favor. Don't turn on the radio. Don't turn on the TV. Don't turn on anything. I'll be right in in just a second and we'll sit down and, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk. And so um, I went in and I heard him call somebody and he said something and to the effect of, you know, she's pregnant, the wife is pregnant. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, how do you want, I just remember hearing that and thought, okay, weird. Um, I probably sat on this information. People started funneling into my house from there. My neighbor came in, um, my bishop from church came in, friends, um, a lot of law enforcement officers started coming in. I wasn't being told anything yet. It was all over the news. Um, you know, the helicopters were from above were 
I think live broadcasting from out there, news stations were out there, and that is that's the reason they didn't want me to. I think honestly, probably the public found out before I even found out. Um, yeah, my phone was obviously turned off. I didn't have it anymore. Um, I want to say maybe six thirty, quarter to seven. I was staring out the front glass um, door of my house, and I saw Spartanburg County Coroner drive up. And um, anybody who's anybody knows that if a coroner's driving up to your house, it's not, it didn't even register with me at the time. Like I thought, that's so bizarre. Why would a coroner be coming to my house? You know, like, honestly, I really didn't, didn't even think yeah. the worst at that point. Um, yeah. They came in, asked me to sit down um, and then proceeded to tell me what had happened. And, um, you know, they said something really, really bad happened down at your husband's business today. Someone came in, shot and killed your husband. And I actually didn't believe him at first. I was like, no, that's, that's not what happened. You know, I thought somebody tried to rub it and then he shot it. And he's, he's like, where did you get that information? I said, I didn't, I just figured, you know, there was a shooting. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, he, from there, I said, okay, well, you know, and obviously I was frantic and crying and emotional and upset. Um, I said, well, I need to talk to his mom. Then where's his mom? I, I need, I really need to talk. What have you guys done with her? And they hadn't really told me, you know, the rest of the story yet. And so then from there, they proceeded to fill me in that, you know, she was killed, that Brian was killed. They didn't identify the last victim yet. And so, um, you know, I, and I, just guess I knew who you know I knew who it was just by yeah but that's that's kind of how it went down it's how I found out how um you know a lot of details that night are now they're, they're kind of a blur you know I remember mm -hmm. some things here and there but I um I again I didn't talk to my anybody my family nobody instead somebody had called them and let them know what was going on and they were making preparations to be in South Carolina the next day. God. Yeah. I know you lived it and I'm sitting here speechless. Well, I'm so I'm 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 17 years eight, 18 years almost removed from it, which still I mean it's yes, it's a shock yeah. story to hear. But yeah, when people do first hear it, they're like, oh my gosh, that's oh what to say. So the investigation started and this, like I said, this is a big one. It's the first quadruple murder to ever, ever happen at this point in Chesney. Um, like there had not been plus like, I think this is back before businesses had security cameras, obviously. Yeah. So they didn't have security cameras to go on. There wasn't really any witnesses alive. Yeah. Like that could have told them what happened. So like they immediately go in to dust for fingerprints um, and so they start contacting people who might have been at the shop that day, customers, family members, like anybody who could tell them or might know something so that they could like start conducting interviews. Yeah. But they held the scene at the bike shop for more than like a week and shut down. So the road that it was on is called Paris Bridge mm -hmm. Road. And it like goes on forever. <laughs> it starts at like Boiling Springs, which is another town in uh, South Carolina. It's all in Spartanburg County. Yeah. But it starts at Bowling Springs and it goes all the way down to Chesney. So that's where the shop was. And it closed down that whole road for three wow. days. 
which, like I said, is a very long road. Because I am back at this time. DNA processing is just starting to be used. Mm -hmm. Starting to be, like, they don't really have... I mean, they have better technology than what they did in the 90s, but it's also a small town in the upstate of South Carolina. I'm sure they weren't equipped to deal with a quadruple. Yeah, plus I imagine a lot of the bigger cities probably got their hands on that technology sooner than the smaller ones, so it was probably still, like, brand Mm -hmm. new stuff for them. Yeah. So inside the dealership, they found 18 shell casings. Some were brass, and then some were nickel-plated, but they all were from the same 9mm gun. But they didn't find any fingerprints on the shell casings, which kind of sucked. So the police were able to determine the exact time the shooting occurred. This is really sad. Which was at 2.45 p.m. And they were able to determine this from a phone call that Scott Ponder tried Mm -hmm. to make. So the police found the cell phone in Scott's hand. And 333 pound sign was dialed. So Scott had pressed send holding the time that the shooting happened. But Melissa, his wife, was his third favorite contact on the phone. So the theory was he was trying to call her, but the call never went through. That's sad. (laughs) That's so sad. That's really sad. Like, this is so sad okay so they were able to determine it wasn't a robbery gone wrong because there was nothing taken from the dealership if you remember beverly had come in to take the deposit to the bank so there was cash laying in plain sight and then also the same year before i think it was like in april scott had won an award from suzuki yeah and i think it was like a gold plated award okay but that was still there so it wasn't taken so it wasn't a robbery yeah But, like, nothing had been touched. Mm -hmm. So, in the media aftermath of the shooting, there was a man and woman reported to have been seen walking near the dealership around the time the shooting happened. And then they were walking back towards the dealership again right after the shooting. Yeah. Both of them are known drug users, and then both had a bad reputation in the area. Mm -hmm. But the thought would be, if it was, like, somebody killing for cash, they would have took the cash. And I would imagine, like two people that are known drug users yeah they definitely kill somebody they were they're gonna do it to rob someone you know what i'm saying yeah they would have taken the money so they could use it for drugs yeah police identified the couple but they were only looked at as potential witnesses and then they were believed to never have been connected with the crime soon after like being contacted they were soon like released so Kelly Sissick, if you remember, he was the customer that was in there right before the shooting happened. Mm-hmm. I think he heard about it on the radio because this is what irritates me. The media gets involved in these kind of cases before anything is figured out and they report about it. And most of the time they be learning stuff that they don't need to be saying because it can ruin the investigation. Yeah. Anyways, the media caught wind and announced it all over the place. Yeah. Well, didn't Melissa say at some point in the interview that, like, media had basically blocked off that entire spot? Yeah. And when she was, like, trying to... When they were taking her... there. Yeah. But, okay, so Kelly, he soon heard about this incident. I think it was, like, on the news. And then he quickly called the police to give information and a description about the customer he saw in there Mm -hmm. as he was leaving the shop. So he helped the police with a sketch of this man. And there was two sketches that ended up going out. The first initial sketch that Kelly gave. And then I think, I couldn't find a lot of detail about it, but then I think a couple of like 
years or like a year after as the first one was released they contacted him again and got like a better sketch yeah done so there's two sketches but it's of the same man yeah I think it just had a little bit more detail. Maybe a different artist or something. So Kelly helped police with a sketch of this man. And soon the police released the sketch to the public. You know, the the authorities believed this man was the possible shooter. They were asking, you know, if you know something, please come forward. If you are this person, please come forward. I think he, he was captain of Spartanburg County Police. Mm-hmm. But his name is Steve Cooper, and he would go on to say, because of the magnitude of this case and the fact that you have four dead bodies, you had information coming in that needed to be worked. It was an overwhelming amount of information. They weren't really concerned with the time that was going by. Yeah. Because it was taking months to go through all these leads. But it, they were more concerned with the, the flooded information that they were receiving. They wanted to be thorough. Mm-hmm. Because, like I said, they don't have the technology as you would think, you know, like New York had at that time. Yeah. It's a small, well, Spartanburg's a big county, but mm-hmm. Chesney's a small town. Yeah. So, police decided to look more into the backgrounds of the victims. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. And the initial background search of Brian and Beverly turned up with nothing. Chris Sherbert had recently been arrested, and the following Monday, he had a, and it was drug-related charges. I couldn't find much about it. Yeah. Anyways, so he had a court case about whatever he got arrested for that Monday. So they got shot on Thursday. He was supposed to go to court on Monday. And apparently he was looking at going away for a lot of time. Oh. But, okay, so... Obviously, there was rumors of Chris Sherbert, the recently hired shop mechanic, had been involved with a drug connection because, like I said, he was arrested. So Terry Ponder, which is Scott Ponder's stepfather and Beverly's husband at the time, he would go on to say, I don't want to talk negatively about anybody that got murdered, but Chris was supposed to go to court that next Monday. From what I gathered, he was looking at a lot of time. And the people that he was with, you know, did they think that he was going to turn state evidence and tell on them. Chris was the first one shot, which I mean, at that point they didn't have any leads. So they're like, yeah, it makes sense when you're putting it in that context. And I can't blame him for thinking that they don't, they also really don't know Chris. He was recently hired. It's not like friends. And then I think Terry was like, was it drug? Did Chris do this? Was there other motorcycle dealerships that were jealous of Superbikes? Yeah. So they ordered a hit to get rid of, like, the competition. At one point, there was even speculation that Melissa herself was involved in all of this. So in most cases, investigators usually look at the spouse as the person of interest. Sure. Was this, um, what? When did you realize that you were one of the people of interest in this case you know I never actually felt targeted by anybody really until um I mean because first I had been super super forthcoming with them I let them come into my house and without a warrant and tear it up apart and take my our computers and life insurance, like all of it. I just let them take everything because I didn't have anything to hide. And so I thought, you know, maybe they'll, they'll find something. We'll have an answer to this. And, and so I, um, didn't feel really like I was somebody that they were even zoning in on and consider. No, 
until, and again, it's because I had just let them have everything. Um, and so my baby was born and then he was about six months old at the time. And I got called into their office one day and he said, we took a DNA test from a diaper that you left behind at the sheriff's office, which is fine. I, they could have yeah. asked for a DNA test and I would have given it to them just to rule that, you know, sure. Yeah. But no, it was all sneaky. And he said, and we sent it off to the lab and got the results back. And it shows that Scott isn't the father of your baby. And so, I mean, I <laughs> talk about, I was speechless. I yeah. said, there's no way. I said, there's absolutely no way. I said, because um, we were, I mean, there's nobody that was in my life besides Scott. Um, we had to have doctor help to get pregnant in the first place. And so I said, I will go get Scotty, his name Scotty. I will go get Scotty yeah. and I will bring him back. And I will watch you swab his mouth in front of me and seal it and put it in an envelope and we'll go from there. So I actually left, um, went and grabbed my baby. He was at my father-in-law's at the time, actually. Um, and, and the way this all started in the first place is they had gotten a phone call that Scott was uh, sterile and that he couldn't even have babies. And that I'm like, okay, to me, there's only one person that that information could come from. And, you know, that yeah. would have been an ex and like, okay. Um, but I, again, I went, went and got him, brought him back. I called my mom and I was like, I don't know what's going on. This is what they're accusing me of. My dad was furious. Um, my father-in-law was absolutely furious. He went back to the sheriff's office with me and he's screaming at them as he's walking in. And it just, I was like, calm down. There's gotta be a quick answer to, you know, something's weird. Let's so anyway, we did another DNA test. They sent it off. Um, it again showed that Scott was not the father of the baby. At that point, I was freaking out, thinking they are trying to pin a quadruple homicide on me. Did I get the wrong sperm? Do I have somebody else's DNA part of my baby? It, like I, it was. I'm like even so that I'm never giving this baby. You know, this is my baby, and I just it just. From there I did, I, I started to freak out a little bit. Um, I did let them know I was headed to my attorneys um, to have a court order to have Scott's body exhumed so that I could have a, a DNA test run because I didn't trust him anymore. I thought that I had been so forthcoming and given them anything and everything that they had wanted. And now all of a sudden I felt like they were backing me in a corner with false information. And I just, and I told him I'm on my way to get a court order and don't call me anymore. You can call my attorney, but you don't have the luxury anymore of, of just calling me up and having me come down. And, and so on my way to my attorney's office, I got a phone call from one of the detectives and he said, don't, don't dig his body up yet. He's like, that's so much, just don't. He's like, I, there's something that's just, something's not adding up here. I don't know what it is, but so we got to figure this out. And so um, they decided to run a DNA test with Scott and his mom, um, the, the stuff that they had collected from the, the crime scene and then the, the coroner's office, and those did not match up. And when Scott and his mom's DNA didn't match up, they went ahead and tested what they had listed as Brian's 
with service managers DNA, they tested that with Beverly and that ended up matching up. And so it was just a mislabel of information on the DNA from the coroner's office. And so that's how that whole thing ended up going down. And I, you know, I found out probably a I want to say maybe three weeks, a month later, I wish they had been a little quicker about that, but I, um, mm -hmm. I always have had a really good relationship with the media out there. Mm -hmm. I just felt like if this is ever going to be solved, I need to let them talk to me. I need to let people see that, you know, this is an injustice that needs to be solved. It needs to be. And so I actually called, the news. Absolutely. I called the news and let them know about what was going on. And I, um, there's just a lot of sad things that happened in between me being accused and then it actually, the, the entire matter being rectified. And one of them was uh, Scott's grandmother passed away mm -hmm. in the middle of this whole mess. And law enforcement had told her that is not your great grandchild. We don't know who he belongs to. Um, so she left some family ponder property to a sister that she hadn't talked to for 15 years previously and had completely taken Scotty out of anything and everything that, um, which hindsight, it's, it's a material thing and it's not, it doesn't matter. You know, that's fine. Yeah. I always felt like she knew the truth as soon as she was gone, you know, that it's, I, again, this is my, my great grandchild. Yeah. Yeah. And so as much as I could have probably fought that, I didn't. I mean, I just felt like these people know, and if they're content with what has happened, then, you know, fine. <laughs> um, I can take care of my baby. It's okay. Um, after that all happened, did you kind of lose faith in Spartanburg County Police? I didn't. Yes. I didn't have the warm fuzzies with them anymore. No. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of hard. I just felt like they knew me better than that, but you know, it's from, from a law enforcement standpoint, I think you have to kind of think from their, um, think, I mean, put your, put yourself in their situation. They get this phone call. Scott can't have kids. They run a DNA test. The DNA doesn't match up. I mean, honestly, what would you have done? I would have probably done the exact same thing they did to me. I mean, I, I can't fault them for following something. DNA is DNA. It's like yeah. ironclad. <laughs> There's nothing to do about that. The problem is, is if you have the wrong DNA, then label does someone it, else. Yeah. And so I've never um I've never really held that against it's it was a human error. And but yes, mm -hmm. I I was a little less forthcoming about I mean, I just yeah, I felt I just felt betrayed. Betrayed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I really did. Absolutely. And I can, I can only imagine, especially at a time where you're grieving the loss of not only your husband, but of your mother-in-law. And now that they're and it, it kind of seems like they're trying to blame both of their murders, plus two other people right. on you. Well, I wanted kinda to like, know, like, where, how does this whole scenario fit in? Like what you think that I had an affair. And so I just went and killed everybody to cover it up. Why would I do that? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, not out, to mention you weren't even there. I wipe out my form of a living, and my—I mean, because mm -hmm. you know, my—I mean, his 
his business obviously was our bread and butter, not my job at the Chamber of Commerce. And so why would I go? Yeah. And there's not any amount of life insurance or money or that's ever going to make up for his future earnings and for nothing. I mean, so it just didn't add up. <laughs> and I feel so bad for him because he not only lost his stepson, but he lost his wife yeah. at the same time. And I also feel super bad for Melissa because she lost her husband and her mother-in-law. Yeah. Like, this whole thing was very sad. It's very sad, yeah. And, like, she's talking, and I'm like, I don't know what to say. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's just, there's no real way to segue when it's super heavy information like that. You're just like, oh, wow. Uh. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing, because it's not funny. I'm just awkward. It's 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 an uncomfortable situation. So another possible lead turned up when authorities started to consider. Um, so five months before Superbike murders, there was a triple homicide in Greer, South Carolina, which is about a 30-mile distant. But it was at Blue Ridge Savings Bank in Greer, South Carolina. So what happened was it was a little old lady. I think her name was Peggy. And she was the teller. She was the only one that worked there. And two customers came in. They were also... Not elderly, but they were oldish, yeah. old age. And they came in, and I assume it was to make, like, a withdrawal or something. Mm-hmm. And then nobody heard from them. And they finally go into the bank. And in the back room, all three had been shot. So they find, like, footage off the highway and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you see a red car speeding towards the bank. And then three minutes later, there's a red car speeding away from the bank. Yeah, They never had a chance to, like, contact the driver because... He had ended up getting into a wreck and then died. This guy had been arrested for armed robbery before, so they're pretty sure what it was was it was a robbery that had gone wrong because I think he expected Peggy to be in there, the teller, but not the other two. Yeah. So he only expected to kill a little old lady. No, I don't think he expected (laughs) to kill anybody. I think he expected, like, the little old lady to be there. Oh, to cooperate and then, yeah. Like, to give the money. Well, then he gets there. It's her and then two other people. And one of them is a man. Yeah. So he, like, freaks out and kills him. I mean, that guy wasn't... I couldn't tell you his name because I didn't... That's fine. It wasn't that important. It's but not- Well, he also was never convicted, but he seemed like a douche cabal. <laughs> That's what matters. Yes. So... They thought, like, Superbike and the Blue Ridge Saving Bank might have been, like, connected. Mm -hmm. But I want to reiterate, no cash was taken, so it's not a robbery gone bad. Yeah. But they ended up, you know, eventually both crimes were considered not connected. Yeah. Like I said, the bank crime was a robbery that had gone wrong. And Superbike was believed to have been done by a disgruntled customer. I mean, nowadays, that's not surprising. It's not off base i don't work in customer service uh yeah i used to don't miss it dangerous (laughs) so authorities chased like a whole bunch of different leads and after several months and you know bashing the wife for no reason because they want to be sneaky peaky about it yeah which is okay i get it from like one end and uh, melissa even says like in her interview she has no hard feelings towards them she realizes they were just doing her jo- their job but like dang they didn't have to do all that the fact that they whew. and it was an ex-girlfriend that called <laughs> it tipped them off they should have known it was an ex-girlfriend yeah but also just the fact that 
they ended up being completely wrong about their assumptions because of something that they did on their end. <laughs> like, and they messed up DNA. Yeah, like, how do you mess up DNA? I mean, I know how you mess up DNA, but like... Yeah, it's just like... If you thought the blood was contaminated, maybe you should take it from the opposite side yeah. that the blood will not be contaminated on. It's just like, oh my god, guys, you have one job. I don't have a lot of faith in Spartanburg anyways, but... <laughs> Well, whatever. It is what so, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, authorities chase multiple different leads, and after several months, the investigation comes to a standstill, and it was like that for almost 13 years. How did you feel as the leads surrounding the case after years of years of it going unsolved? How did you feel once every lead kind of seemed to fizzle out? I think when you go a certain amount of time, you, I feel like you have two options. You can become really, really a bit, you know, bitter about what your life has dealt you, or you can say, okay, I need to make peace with this. And, and that takes years, obviously. Um, and I need to accept that this is God's way. And there's a reason he doesn't want me to know what had happened right now. I still may while I'm here, I may not, you know, and I kind of, that's, the, that's the point I got myself to was, I'm not going to let this, you know, ruin every good thing that's in my life and that is to come. And I just need to make peace with all of this and, and really do the best I can for me and, and my son and just moving forward. Mm-hmm. Until a man named Todd Colehep became the center of the police's attention. And that's where I'm going to leave you. (laughs) It's called a cliffhanger because we want you to come back. Yeah, we'll see you part two. Part two, I'm going to talk about Todd's growing up and his More of the background. Yeah, but Superbike was an important. It was an important preface to talking about Todd. Because it happened way before he was caught. Like, way before he was caught. And there was... And it was on its own for so long, for 13 years, it was on America's Most Wanted. Like, for 13 years, these people went without any knowledge of who did this. No answers. <laughs> like, that, I can't even imagine having to go that long and not, not find out anything. Like, so, I, would I really that. feel for Melissa, for Terry, yeah. for, I think, I believe... Uh, Brian's mother's name was Lorraine um, Chris Sherbert's family mm-hmm. oh and I was watching this documentary it's called something it's in the notes <laughs> <laughs> I forgot what it's called it's but, called something so the police notified Scott's family and Brian's family but Chris Sherbert's family had to find out through the newspaper Are you serious? two days later because the police failed to contact them twice. They failed to contact them when he was murdered, and they failed to contact them when Todd Colehep confessed. Wow. That's... I feel... And his... I think it was his aunt yeah. that raised him, or his... It was either his aunt or his grandma. I think it was his grandma. Yeah. Um, but she was... She's so cute. <laughs> I'm. She was sad. Yeah, I would be sad, too. Uh, it's kind of like what happened to Carrie Pitzel. When she found out that H.H. Holmes murdered her children, like, she didn't find out from the police, she found out from the news. Like, that's gotta be the worst way to possibly find out something like that. That's the worst. There's no good way to find out 
information but about... But I'd rather know it before the entire world yeah. knows. Especially, I'd like to process it. Yeah, especially because it's like, if somebody comes up to you and they're like, oh my god, I'm so sorry, and you're just like, what? What, what are you talking about? Like, that just adds oh, another layer. Oh, you got layer. shot, didn't you? <laughs> like, I'm so glad they caught it. And I'll be like, what? <laughs> they caught the people? Yeah. I've been looking for these people for the last two years. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just... Oh, yeah, guys. I got shot. Yeah. She says it so casually, and I'm just like, God damn, Brittany. <laughs> I told Melissa that. <laughs> she, was... she was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> you threw her off so much. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I got shot too. So I, like, I get it. She's like, wait, what? Now we need to interview you. And I was like, no, it's fine. Like, I, I'm fine. Yeah. But. So anyways, yeah, I got shot. <laughs> I don't have anything exciting to add to that. <laughs> I think Brie used to work at Disney World. For like three months and then I dropped out. <laughs> I say dropped out because it was the Disney College program. So. Oh. I was supposed to be there from january until august and which i which one the florida one yeah um and i was supposed to be there until august and then i dropped out in the very beginning of march i think it was be you mean you didn't want to be a cast member i i wasn't a cast member i was a housekeeper <laughs> that's technically a cast member all the workers there are considered i know cast that members. Brittany. i worked there <laughs> clearly <no. laughs> dang but and you worked there and rapunzel wasn't even a princess yet. i know that is so sad for your life. I know. Like, I am so sad for your soul. So we we also could get into the parks basically for free, except that I worked PM while everybody else worked AM, so I never got to go with my friends. So I only went to the parks for free twice. So that's the real tragedy out of not all of it. Funny. <laughs> it's not funny. I was in a very bad place at that time too, so I was like, this is the worst. I know this is supposed to be the happiest place on earth, but it's not. <laughs> Anyway, so that's Todd Colehelp part one. And I know we only really mentioned his name towards the end, but there is a reason for that. And you'll find out next week. Yes, you will. <laughs> so if you would like to get more of this content, follow us on social media. We are on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We are on Facebook as a group. It's a private group. Just search up Shockingly Wicked Podcast and we'll accept you. And then we are also on YouTube. I believe we finally hit the quarter mark. We have finally hit 25 subscribers. I don't know. I don't know if I we... thought you were about to say we hit 50. No. And then I realized a quarter. No. No. <laughs> I wish we hit the, the halfway point. But no. We finally hit the quarter of the way mark. <laughs> Which is not 50. It's, it's not. 25. It's 25. Yes. Because 25 cents quarter. Yeah. So anyway yeah, that's, um that's quick maths for you <laughs> so if you find us on youtube you just have to search up shockingly wicked podcast and then subscribe because we need 100 subscribers to give you a url and that's all of our social media if you have any case Gmail. suggestions i was just about to get there <laughs> sure. if you have any case suggestions Feel free to email us at shockinglywickedpodcast at gmail.com. We are always open to suggestions. Okay, leave us a review. I'm going to go get Juvederm. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>